Pittsburgh at 415-648-3392 or go to www.savenature.org. Bowl the planet, wild fun for the whole family. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book on Cover to Cover. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Les Waters, who's the Associate Artistic Director of Berkeley Rep here in Berkeley. Les Waters' latest project is a play called Concerning Strange Devices from the Distant West by Naomi Izuka. And this play is running through what date? April the 11th, possibly April the 18th. And after that, you're working on a play called Girlfriends, which we'll discuss as well. Berkeley Rep has just come out with next season's plays, which you were involved in in selecting, and we'll talk about that as well. Les Waters was born in 1952 in Cleethorpe, England, and moved to Scunthorpe, which is a steel-working town in the midst of, as you call it, beautiful countryside, and all you wanted to do was get out. That's correct. Scunthorpe is an English joke. The name's a joke, because if you spell it out, it's got a four-letter word buried in the middle of it. It's a steel-working town. I mean, I think it's a population of about 70,000. It's in the middle of Lincolnshire, which is flat farming land, which is... uh, My my mother's family were farm laborers, and my dad was a steel worker, and I was... You know, a teenager in a particularly tumultuous period, the 60s, and Scunthorpe really wasn't going to do it for me, so I tried to escape as much as possible. Well, you were a little bit late then for the the early rock and roll boom in Liverpool and all that. I mean, you were only like 11 years, 12 years old yeah, you know, yeah. at that point, yeah. but you saw it from a distance. Yeah, there was no way you could escape it. I mean, it was even in this town that I was brought up in. It was still a kind of tumultuous period. What attracted you to theater? I mean, how did theater play a role? How did you come into theater from this town? I have no theatrical background. I mean, my parents didn't really take me to the theater. They didn't go to theater. I mean, we saw English pantomimes, those kind of curious things over Christmas. My way into it, I, I used to sing as a child i had this great soprano voice and i sang a lot in concerts and recitals and occasionally in very small opera productions and i hated it i mean i could sing but i didn't like the performing side of it i didn't like being looked at which is a bit of a problem if you're a performer and this was in scunthorpe this was in scunthorpe and in lincoln which is a cathedral town which i used to sing in the choir there I hated the performing side of it, but it consumed so much of my life. I used to sit at the side of the room and watch how these people would put these events together. And that became really interesting to see how it was done. 
how would you just make a big piece of theatre? And then I made one of those decisions, those kind of strange decisions you do when you're in your teens, like, I'm going to do this with my life. I mean, completely uninformed. Well, I had no knowledge of it. I thought, I want to work in the theatre, and I want to be a theatre director. How do you get from point A to point B? You go down to London and you see some plays. Did you just sort of go backstage and meet people? No, I didn't. I went and saw everything I could. I gave my parents terrible grief over this. I mean, I would leave when I was at high school. I would walk out of high school at Friday lunchtime, skip classes, walk across fields to um, the A1 or the M1, which are the you know the the roads that go down the middle of England, and hitch rides down to London, and sometimes stay with friends in London. But I often slept. I used to sleep on the platforms of Euston railway station, particularly in the winter because it had uh, underfloor heating. And I would sometimes get back on Mondays. Sometimes I didn't come back for a week or so and I would go and see plays with the cheapest seats available and I saw some pretty amazing things so I had a kind of Scunthorpe life and a London life these kind of parallel the exciting one in London but there's one point where you actually make the transition from watcher to mm -hmm. participant and what was that well I went to Manchester University to do a BA because there's no such thing in England or maybe there is now but there wasn't then there's no BFA I did a BA in English and Drama dropped the English within the first few weeks because I wasn't all that interested in it and started to direct fellow students in shows did that for three years desperately wanted to work at the Royal Court Theatre in London which is sort of still I think the flagship of new writing there and managed to get myself a job there as an assistant director which I think was 77, 76 or 77, I was 24 or 25 and that's how the career began yeah and I was there for four years I think shortly after that directed a play called Fen, F-E-N the Fens are an agricultural area in England where my mother's family are from and that was invited to the public theatre in New York. And that's how the American side of things developed. Well, Les Waters, let's move up to the present time. You've been now involved, this is your seventh year as the Associate Artistic Director of Berkeley Rep, which I guess means you get involved in all the decisions, but you don't have the paperwork? I don't carry the can in the end. I direct usually two shows a season, and I'm part of a team of people who help select the seasons and talk through what's there and which writers were interested in which shows you know other theaters approaches about work so um yeah i'm part of that team and tony tacconi makes the final tony makes the final decision let's talk now about this play concerning strange devices from the distant west someone asked what it's about i said well it's kind of about japan and photography and i can't go much further one of the things I'm finding about the play as I think about it is that directing it, the production could take it in so many different directions. So I'm curious, when this play came to you, was it in any way, shape, or form like the play we saw? And how did you make the technical decisions you made? 
Well, the play was a commission. I think it's three years ago we asked Naomi whether she was interested in writing something for us. And she said yes. She'd worked here several years ago on a play of hers called 36 Views. You know, she had various ideas for projects. And one of the things she was interested in was 19th century Japanese photography. Naomi and I are both photography freaks. I don't take photos. Well, I sort of take photographs, but I don't really take photographs but I look at them a lot of the time I mean one of my great pleasures of living in the Bay Area is going over to the Frankel Gallery in San Francisco and looking at their extraordinary exhibitions and I knew scarcely anything about Meiji era photography I mean I knew that there were hand-tinted photographs of kind of geishas and samurais but I hadn't really looked at them closely and the play's in three parts. It's a triptych. So part one is in Japan in the 19th century and concerns a photographer who actually lived there called Fasari, who took photographs sometimes of Westerners in Japanese clothes and sometimes of, you know, various people modeling for him. I mean, what we were both interested in is that a lot of these times you think, oh, look, it's a geisha, and it actually isn't. Well, they think it isn't. They think it's somebody he picked who's modeling for him. I still think people somehow think a photograph is kind of representation of the truth in a way, because we can all pick up a camera. If you can look through a viewfinder and press a button, you can take a photograph of something in front of you. But these photographs were manipulated. All photographs have been manipulated from the very... I mean, they're hand-tinted to make them look more like paintings. So that was part one, and part one arrived, I would say, within six to nine months of the commission. Then part two, which is in, set in Tokyo now, about a professor of art history who's there to buy some photographs by Fasari, arrived... I would say that takes us like 18 months into the thing. And then part three, I think I have three different versions of part three. There was at one point when part three was set in Tokyo in 1952 about a, an American GI returning that. So the third part's gone through lots of changes. And it does make very big technical demands. It has a live video feed intercut with pre-recorded video and also several shots of things that are not happening in front of you at the time. It's a technical beast. You also directed in the next room the vibrator play which is straightforward set. I mean you do yeah. you do some manipulation yeah. but it's a straightforward yeah. set. What was the determining factor in creating this more abstract set? The fact that you needed to show some of these images? Well, I think what we were interested in in the production is that we would manipulate the production in the same way that somebody can manipulate a photograph. So there's a bar scene in the middle of the play where the professor is meeting the woman who's going to translate for him, and it has three moments where the sound and the color distort, which in some sense you could say, well, it's just like jet lag. I mean, I worked once in Japan, and I, uh, the first day I arrived there, I thought I died. I mean, it was just, I had no idea what was going on, partly because it's so visually confusing, but I couldn't remember when I'd left London. I seemed to have lost two days. But it's also, we're kind of tweaking around the production in the same way that you can take a photograph now digitally, 
and say, you know, I'm going to leach all of the colour out of this bit, but boost the red here. And actually, Richard's head would look better on Les's body, so we're just going to move it around. So we're doing that with the production. And the play, in a sense, one of the things it talks about is that these things in, in our face, these eyes that we have that we trust to guide us through the world are actually kind of unreliable narrators themselves. So what you're watching on stage, you get many, many versions of the truth coming from different perspectives when the characters are speaking, is that visually, uh, don't be so sure that what you're seeing is real, whatever real means in theatrical terms. Well, there's one point in uh, the scene, the discussion, the bar scene, where we see video on a screen, we see different images of that particular sequence. And by watching it, it occurred to me that I could never be sure if these were actual video cameras of what we were seeing on stage at that moment or whether they were pre-taped. There are three images. There's two live video feeds, one pre-recorded tape and eight shots of things that don't actually happen on stage. So I think there's a moment where the stage is completely still and Teresa, who plays the translator in it, is actually touching the back of her hair. There's also a moment in the play when somebody, later on in the play, somebody admits that they stole somebody's driving license out of a purse. I've had several people tell me that they saw... Bruce McKenzie, the actor, do it. He actually doesn't do it. It's like if you're told that it's happened, you tend to believe it. But he doesn't touch it. I mean, his hand goes nowhere near trying to get in the purse. And there's also sequences uh, early on in Vasari's studio where he's taking photos and the angles sometimes seem a little bit wrong for the photos and I don't know if that's deliberate or not. They are a bit off. I mean, they're not really off. It's just that the set is kind of contorted in a way the set's full of optical illusions something just seems to be receding on the set that actually isn't or there's a moment where something appears to the audience to be on a straight line but it isn't on stage it's very disconcerting if you walk from the audience on stage because it's it's very hard to really work out where you are on that how many of these effects are deliberate and how many are just serendipitous Probably 80% are what we intended to do, but then we found out, we found out when we were on stage that things were happening that we hadn't planned, or that we thought if this happened, it would look like this, but it doesn't. And then we ran with that, you know, I mean, you try and keep in the moment with the thing, so it was like, oh, look, that's happening, so now let's follow this through and see what it does. You're listening to an interview with Les Waters, the Associate Artistic Director of Berkeley Rep, who has just directed Concerning Strange Devices from the Distant West. I read that you give the actors very few notes, and yet you say you're manipulating them. I'm not the chattiest of people in the rehearsal room. I think I've trained myself to watch very hard and listen. I think I say what I know when I know it. I say what I have to say when I have something to say, and the rest of the time I keep... And I'm pretty good at manipulating. 
part of directing is finding the right actors, which yeah. I, I would think that casting is 80% of that. Sure. I mean, you have to find people who have a kind of appetite for the work. Certain plays demand different kind of actors. You can find very great people who just don't get on the wavelength of the play or would worry about the wrong things. Um, this is a fine cast. They're really good in it. Was the playwright with you the whole time during? Some of the time. She came in. She was there for the first week uh, when we were basically sitting around a table. She disappeared, came back for the, uh, the first run-through in the rehearsal room, talked about it, made some changes, came back at the end of the rehearsal process, and then disappeared during the technical process. How do you feel about the difference between directing a play that's written in stone and directing a play that's a little more malleable because you have a, a playwright? Well, I'm used to having the playwright there. I mean, I trained, if you could call it training. It was way too cha chaotic at the Royal Court Theatre where the playwrights were expected to be there and they expected to be there. I... I uh, I found when I'm directing, so if I'm directing a classic, I um, sometimes kind of think, oh, Christ, I wish Chekhov were here. Now, you know, give us a clue. It's just a different kind of dialogue with the play. Your next play, uh, Girlfriends, and the idea of doing two plays back-to-back -back like that, is that problematic, or does that make it easier because you're already here? That doesn't make it easier. It's, it's going to be very tiring. I think I will have been in rehearsal from, well, I know this, January 26th through April 14th with six days off in the middle. No, it's just how the, you know, the scheduling worked out. This next play, have you already started the preliminaries on it? Yeah, it's designed. The design team have done their work. It's a play for two young men, one of whom I think is actually a teenager. It's about two teenage boys in that period when, you know, after you've left high school, who realize they're in love with each other. So there's the two performers and a girl band of four, and we start next Tuesday. This is based on an album? Yeah, in the early 90s, somewhere 91, 93, Matthew Sweet put out an album called Girlfriend, which I remember watching the title track girlfriend has a spectacular piece of japanese anime i remember watching i think i was on a visit over here to the states and staying somewhere in the days when people actually watched mtv to watch music videos to watch pretty major sometimes film directors strut their stuff remember watching this thing girlfriend and thinking oh that's a great that's like a perfect three four minute pop song I didn't really know the rest of the album. And Todd Armand, who's a composer himself who lives in New York, has taken Matthew Sweet's album, Girlfriend, and constructed this play with songs in it. And most of the, I think, all but two songs are from Girlfriend itself. So it's kind of, uh, in a sense, a jukebox musical in that he's taking pre-existing material, yeah. but the pre-existing material is part of a story. And the interesting thing is that the album itself, Girlfriend, has no narrative. It's not a concept album, as far as I know, I mean, unless there's a concept buried in there that I can't identify. I've never done a musical. I like a challenge. I like doing things that I don't know how to do, that I have to learn. The word to describe the piece, uh, it's unfortunate that the word is the same as the 
musician's name, but the piece is sweet. The piece is very raw and vulnerable in the same way that teenagers are. I'm the father of three, and we're now in the tenth year of living with teenagers, so I know what that's like. <laughs> and it's a completely different vibe from this other play. Completely no, there's no connection. That allows you to keep it separate from your mind when working on the two projects. Yeah. You know, the only connection between the two is that both have characters who are gay, and it's like, so what? They are so different from each other. Well, Les Waters, let's talk a little about next season. Uh, you were involved with the decisions, and specifically speaking of Chekhov, you're working on production new translation of the three sisters and that's translated by sarah rule or is she taking someone else's translation she's taken somebody else's translation and she's uh, done her version of three sisters which is three sisters i mean i'm saying it's a version of it it's not set anywhere it's set in russia and the you know and and there are three sisters and it's a play that i've wanted to direct for a very long while i think like most people who work in the theater i'm completely in awe of Chekhov. I think it's as good as it gets. And it's as sad as it gets. At this particular time, even while you're working on these other plays, is there something in the back of your mind saying, okay, there's a certain technical thing that I'm thinking about trying to achieve, or aren't you really there yet? There are ideas brewing around. I mean, I doubt if this will creep in but i was listening to the pet shop boys the other day who are a band i find particularly interesting i thought well this is interesting because it's very very the, the music's very perky and the lyrics either acerbic or deeply sad i was listening to a song of theirs called being boring because somebody had said to me why are you doing Chekhov? it's so boring and i thought well is it M maybe it is at times so i don't know if the pet shop boys will creep in <laughs> to sarah raw's version of Chekhov's the three sisters but that's in the back of my mind and i'm going to finland in august to a theater festival oh you know can i get from finland to russia just to Check it out, yeah. Some of the other plays that are coming up, uh, a play called Compulsion, which I find an odd title for a play because I keep thinking of the, the film Compulsion. Uh -huh. But this one is about Anne Frank and Meyer Levin. I interviewed Francine Prose, who recently wrote a book about uh -huh. Anne Frank and, uh -huh. you know, the diary itself, right. and, and I was fascinated by it. Were you involved in any of that decision-making for that play? It was a play that the artistic team read and we co-commissioned with the public theater in new york and rinnie groff is a writer that we all like and it just the subject matter of it seemed very interesting that whole battle of who owns the diary and because she's so iconic <laughs> to everybody when i talk to prose i mean mm -hmm. the the entire meyer levin story and his obsession yeah. with the diary yeah is a story unto itself that's yeah. never really been told. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing story. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. There's also a, a, a play called Ruined by Lynn Nottage. Now, that already won the Pulitzer. Yeah, I saw it. Several of us saw it in New York at the Manhattan Theatre Club last year. It's an extraordinarily powerful play about women in a war zone and i remember sitting in the audience in new york thinking this is deeply moving 
and what a strange experience it was because I'd forgotten how little we see plays about somewhere else and somewhere else now I and I was talking with friends in England about it and saying is this true in England I mean I when I was first starting out in the working in the 70s I think you saw more plays from around the world and it seems we've got into a terribly narrow focus on plays about America or plays about Americans or if I see another play about life on the upper west side of New York I'll punch myself in the face and this uh, this certainly isn't that. And then there's, uh, I, what is it, 12 short plays, The Great Game, Afghanistan? Yeah, The Great Game is coming from the Tricycle Theatre in London and was produced last year and is 12 short plays by various writers about the history of Afghanistan. And it's kind of epic, but you can see it in different parts. So Les Waters. Have you ever thought about directing films? Yeah, but not really. I mean, I'm approaching 58. I think I should have done it many years ago. I mean, I love films, but it's never been a big... The desire isn't there, I suppose, to really push myself at it. We're entering a period of in, in theater that's kind of disturbing. A play like In the Next Room, which you directed, starts in Berkeley. It opened in New York mm -hmm. to rave reviews, mm -hmm. as did a uh, revival of Finian's Rainbow. Yep. Both opened in the fall, rave reviews, and yet neither of them could build an audience, and yet Wicked goes on and on. Yeah, it's um, a curious state of affairs. I mean, it may well be that we've hit a bit, you know, a period of time where to do a straight play on Broadway, you need major film or TV stars in it. People want to see stars in things. You know, they want that bit of glamour of knowing that they've sat in a darkened room for several hours and watched somebody famous. I mean, saying that is the worst economic climate. I had a wonderful time doing it. Uh, the Lincoln Center who produced us on Broadway were just the best. Uh, but a friend of mine, when I was bemoaning the fact that it was coming off, that it wouldn't extend beyond, said what I didn't realize that, you know, like Broadway was like Disneyland and that a lot of the people there, are, they want a ride. They want a kind of, it's an amusement park. They want a big ride and occasionally people don't give them rides. They give them art installations. <laughs> They're confused <laughs> by the experience. You know, a 12, I think we ran for 12 weeks, a new play on Broadway, no stars, 12 weeks in a theater that seats a thousand people. It would have been nice if it had continued, but pretty good to me. Les Waters, uh, we know you're working on these two plays now, and um, then you have uh, Chekhov. What other projects are in the works over the next couple of years? I'm going to go to Steppenwolf in Chicago in 2011 to direct a play by Will Eno, who uh, is a playwright I love, um, a play of his called Middletown, which you could say is uh, Will's riff on Thornton Wilder's Our Town, but it's um, that makes it seem a bit derivative. Um, it's an extraordinary play. And I will be in New York in May, June working on a play called The Small by Anne Washburn, who used to live here in Berkeley and is now based in New York. And that's about small 
daily things, the little things that we do in our lives and the kind of mystical repercussions of that. And that's a new play? Yes. So outside of the Chekhov, you're pretty much dealing with new material. I think so, yeah. I, I really love it. I've done it all my life. I really like being the first person to direct a new play. I find life terribly confusing and I find new work for me operates like a map. You know, I, I find them real guides to uh, the world I live in. You've been listening to an interview with Les Waters, who's the director of Concerning Strange Devices from the Distant West, which is playing into sometime in mid-April. He is the Associate Artistic Director of Berkeley Rep in Berkeley. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com. Open Book is produced by Richard Walensky in the studios of KPFA Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, California. Jane Meyer, Ahmed Rashid, and Shirin Ebadi are just a few of the in-depth interviews UC Professor Harry Chrysler has conducted for his intriguing new book, Political Awakenings, Conversations with History. Berkeley Arts and Letters will present this at the Hillside Club, 2286 Cedar Street in Berkeley, Wednesday evening, March 24th, 7.30. There's wheelchair access. Full info is at KPFA dot o-r-g